Hello, everyone, and welcome to Litigation Radio. I'm your host, Dave Scriven Young. I'm a commercial and environmental litigator in the Chicago office of Bakar and Abramson, which is recognized as the largest law firm serving the construction industry with 115 lawyers and 11 offices around the U.S. On this show, we talk to the country's top litigators and judges to discover best practices in developing our careers, winning cases, getting more clients, and building a sustainable practice. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and your favorite podcasting app to make sure you're getting updated with future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the litigation section of the American Bar Association. It's where I make my home in the ABA. The litigation section provides litigators of all practice areas the resources we need to be successful advocates for our clients. Learn more at ambar.org litigation. On today's episode, we're going to discuss recent trends in class actions with Jack Clabby, who is co-director of Carlton Fields Class Action Survey. The survey was compiled through more than 400 interviews with general counsel, chief legal officers, and direct reports to general counsel. Jack is a shareholder in the Tampa office of Carlton Fields, where he focuses on corporate governance, fraud, and shareholder litigation, including the defense of securities fraud, class actions, and derivative lawsuits. A former assistant U.S. attorney, he also represents companies and special litigation committees in connection with internal corporate investigations. Jack also advises corporate boards and management on legal issues regarding cybersecurity and represents companies in litigation, including class actions concerning breaches and data loss incidents. Welcome to the show, Jack. Hey, thanks, Dave. I'm a big fan of the podcast, and thanks for all you're doing for this section of litigation. Well, I appreciate that. You know, a lot of folks, including our young lawyers, are very interested in our guests' career paths. And so I understand that you were an assistant U.S. attorney early in your, in your career. Can you tell us why did you decide to work there and what did you uh, focus your time on? So I started my career at a, at a litigation firm in Washington, D.C., right out of a clerkship. And I was there for about four years. I worked on class action matters, both in the security space and, and uh, had my first uh, data privacy matter there as well. But I really had always wanted to get trial experience. And the really the best place to get that these days, um, and, and even 15 years ago, what I'm talking about, was at the U.S. Attorney's Office or at a prosecutor shop. And so there was an opening uh, in my home state of New Jersey, and I kind of felt like if I didn't make the move then as a fifth-year associate, my window would close and I'd lose that opportunity. So I went back to my home state of New Jersey and worked at the U.S. Attorney's Office and just had a great time there. I worked on all manner of stuff, but I had particular experience in cybersecurity and national security cases and in crimes that were committed through computers. And so it got to flex that other side of my um, my sort of legal career. And I did get trials and I did get in-court experience. So it was great. And so for any young folks who have that opportunity, who are thinking about exploring trial work or about exploring a substantive area of the law, I mean, there's just nothing like being a, being an assistant U.S. attorney or prosecutor of any type. Just a great experience. It was exactly what I had hoped it would be. And then about four years into that, we relocated from New Jersey to Florida, and I returned to private practice. That's almost nine years ago now, which is amazing when I think about it. And I picked up where I left off. I did return to doing securities work, largely class actions, fraud and fiduciary duty litigation. And then I had sort of continued on that other side of my practice doing privacy and cybersecurity work. And the thread through it all has been class actions work, has been the idea of working on these cases that are hard to manage, that require sort of specialized knowledge. And they're a great deal of fun because you're, you're, you're talking about one person's experience, typically with a corporate actor, and you're trying to extrapolate that to all the other folks you could stand in that person's shoes. So 
I just think of it as such a fascinating way to um, try to solve, which are these sort of societal problems through this mechanism of, of in the federal rules, Rule 23. Got it. Makes a ton of sense. Can you talk a little bit about the recruiting process, uh, becoming an assistant U.S. attorney? Because I think a lot of young lawyers are kind of interested in exactly what you said, getting that trial experience, having that camaraderie kind of with other folks who are you know, working in that space. What is the best way if folks are interested in taking that career path to get there? Sure. And there's still two real ways to do it. Um, and this, this is true almost in any large city. Um, and even in the non-large cities, there's really two paths. The first path is go to a, uh, become a prosecutor in an excellent state's attorney's office or, or a county prosecutor's office. Do trials, try to do the hardest questions, the trials that require the most writing and that have the biggest impact. So it's really, that's sort of the first way that the U.S. attorney's office is going to recruit is through the larger uh, state prosecutor's offices, typically county prosecutors or state's attorney's offices. And the second is the path that I took, which is going to a firm and doing litigation, really focusing on your writing, focus on your presence as a member of the litigation team, because that's really the second place that the sort of the bigger U.S. attorney's offices like the District of New Jersey tend to recruit. Um, within my class at the U.S. attorney's office, it was about half and half. There were folks in the District of New Jersey who had done what I did, uh, law school, a clerkship, and then four or five years at a big firm. And then there were uh, folks who did it the other way, which is, you know, the Essex County in New Jersey, the Essex County Prosecutor's Office, or a Bergen County Prosecutor's Office, and just um, getting visible and then applying there as a fifth, sixth, or, or seventh, seventh year. So those seem to be the two paths to do it. And you don't really don't lose anything on either path. It's a matter of whether you want to get started being a prosecutor earlier or whether you want to do some time at a firm. You know, I, I frankly needed to do some time at a firm just to make some money after law school. And I think you know a lot of people find themselves in that position. But if, if you don't need to go to a law firm, it's totally okay to start at a state's attorney's or a prosecutor's office as well. Sure. And what are some of the things that you learned in the prosecutor's office that you kind of brought over when you came back to private practice? My, my favorite thing, and I think about this almost every day, is, you know, uh, when, you, when you're a prosecutor, if good things happen, you get credit. If bad things happen, it's your fault, regardless of whether you had anything to do with it. And I kind of love that being, <laughs> I kind of love that aspect of being a prosecutor. I would show up to court and, you know, the prisoner who was there for a guilty plea wouldn't be there. And the judge would look at me like it was my fault, right? And I had done everything that I needed to do to produce the prisoner. And, you know, it was just the idea that if you end up having the answers and you have a reputation for honesty, you're going to get all the questions, whether you're really supposed to know the answers or not. And I try to take that approach in litigation as well. Like, it's hard to be on a case on the defense side or on the, on, on the prosecution side of a civil case or an arbitration. You know, I want to be the guy who can answer the questions, right? Whether it's something that's within my responsibility or not. And I think that kind of ownership over the cases has been a really good thing for my career. And for those who are younger folks who maybe are outside of their career or mid-level associates, I mean, that's a, a, something that I learned as a prosecutor that I carried through really well is that, you know, no matter what happens in the courtroom, I want the judge to turn to me because I usually have an idea, even if I'm not the responsible party for how to solve it. And that's really important. There's sort of no free riders among the defense lawyers. And, and it really has been, I don't think if I had been a prosecutor, I would have understood that as much. That That's a hard lesson to learn if you're not in that position. Well, that's that's great advice. And speaking of answering questions, um, let's talk a little bit about uh, the Carlton Fields Class Action Survey. Now in its 12th edition, how did the firm go about gathering the information? Well, you know, 
12 years ago when the firm started this, there wasn't anything like it. We, don't, we still don't think that there is. There's a lot of studies on class actions that come from docket research. But this is an actual, this is a survey of, you know, you, it's 400 plus in-house or, or, or general counsel who have responsibility over complex litigation dockets. What we do is we, as lawyers, from our experience on class actions, put together a survey, sort of a written set of questions we then give that survey to a to a consulting firm that goes out and actually asks the questions to the in-house counsel and to the general counsel. And we do that so that it's not us shading the questions, right? We don't want to suggest answers. So we let sort of single-blind questions happen through the consulting firm. And then the consulting firm gives us the results, and then we touch it again, and we get to see what the results of all of our questions are. From year to year, most of the questions are the same. Because what we're trying to do is measure changes over time. But every year we add a, a new question or two. Like, so this year we asked about early motions for summary judgment. We hadn't done that in the past, which had some really interesting results from it. So that's the idea of it. It's asking existing in-house counsel who manage complex litigation dockets what their current docket looks like, what their predictions are for the near-term future, and what has been effective for them in managing these complex class action matters. And, and the results of it give you a snapshot as the reader of what's in the mind of the, uh, the defense side for these class actions. And these are they're the biggest of the big. I mean, these are the largest companies essentially in the United States. We need to go to that population because one, we want sophisticated in-house counsel who's thought about this stuff. And we also want to try to find in-house counsel where, you know, at these biggest companies where they're seeing repeat class actions. And so the, we think that the results are, uh, of the survey are important for trends. But again, if you're serving clients who are smaller companies, it's still valuable because if, you know, to that company, maybe they get one class action every three years, it's still potentially the most important case that they get. And if you really want to figure out how to manage these things effectively, looking at the biggest companies that have the most touches on the ball is probably the best way to do it. And we, we think that's a really important use for the legal community of the results of these surveys. Sure. I mean, it's an amazing proposition, which is asking, you know, over 400 GCs and, and similar, uh, you know, folks with similar positions, you know, questions about, you know, what they see coming up in the law. So what did your survey find in terms of what in-house counsel are, uh, are currently thinking about with respect to class actions? You know, I think one of the big headlines was spending. There's just fees and costs of, putting aside settlements, but just fees and costs for class actions, you know, are estimated to be about 3.5 billion, $3.5 billion. I mean, just fees and costs. I mean, that's wild, right? I mean, when Congress and the states set up this idea of, a, of class action rules and the permissibility of class actions in the United States, I, mean, I don't think originally they were thinking it was going to become an industry of this size. I mean, it really is standing alone a major industry in the United States the costs of prosecuting and defending these class actions. And so that number, I think, gets people's attention. In terms of what we saw this year that's maybe different from last year, one of the big threads this year was the frustration of in-house counsel over what they see as the growth of baseless claims. I think about six out of 10 pointed to base, baseless claims, in their view, as being sort of the biggest issue of risk for their companies. And, and that one, that was what they said, right? But then it's borne out by other survey findings. For example, 
you know, this year, I mentioned a moment ago, we asked for the first time about early motions for summary judgment. I mean, hugely effective and somewhat surprising, I think, as a, you know, I've been in the defense bar now, you know, for, for well over 15 years. And it's just not a tool in a large class action that you see very frequently. The only time you'd flex an early motion for summary judgment is in a case where a motion to dismiss isn't going to be heard by the court or, or there, there's artful pleading. And you're going to put down, you know, this individual plaintiff does not have a claim. And I'm willing to take the risk of putting that in front of a judge before I even interpose objections to class certification. So the fact that, you know, over half the respondents thought that motions for summary judgment in an early phase were effective, you know, is support for this idea that, that there are basis claims that are out there. A second one, and there are a number, but, but a second one is this idea that we looked at uh, every year we ask about settlements. And it was essentially the lowest of the, as a percentage of open matters, what settled was the lowest I think it had been in five years in this survey. So not a lot of these open matters settled. And then within the matters that settled, the number was pretty high in terms of individual settlements. So again, you know, when do you settle uh, as a plaintiff? When do you settle a class action on an individual basis? You do it when you don't have confidence that you're going to get certified in the class or you've lost your class certification, right? And these are the same courts that, on the perception of the defense bar, are, are not granting motions to dismiss. And so we really did see this year that growing frustration that a lot of these claims that are being brought are baseless. Or you know, if they have any legs under them, they're still susceptible to settlement on an individual basis without ever really airing class certification arguments. So that, was, I think, was pretty, was pretty interesting. For counsel who read this, for outside counsel who read this, one of the big findings this year, I think, is a missed opportunity for alternative fee arrangements. We saw over the last three years, we saw a real decline in in-house counsel pointing to bet the company class actions. Most of the class actions that were filed in the last year or that are part of the open docket are high-risk or moderate-risk class actions. And so you're not looking at the type of class actions like an antitrust case or maybe a securities fraud case where it's, you, the company is going to put all their resources into defending it and turning over every stone. Instead, they're looking at these on a risk basis. And so if you're an outside lawyer who's working with, these, uh, with the in-house lawyer to defend these claims, you're going to approach it in a very different way. You're going to talk about cost-benefit trade-offs. You're going to talk about maybe not doing all the depositions you want, maybe making some decisions about what depositions make sense. You may not file every discovery motion, you may file just some of them. And so the concept of matter management for cases that are not at the company, it provides a lot more opportunity for back and forth between outside counsel and inside counsel about cost savings. One of the big findings from this year's survey as well is by far, phased payments were pointed to by in-house counsel as the most effective form of alternative fee arrangement for defending class actions. That kind of creates that balance between a fixed fee on the one hand or a flat fee or cap fee and just relying on a budget. And so that's something that I think if you're reading this as an outside lawyer and you're thinking about either going back to your current clients for whom you do class action work or pitching a new client, you know, and if it's not a bet the company matter, I think the law firms that you're going to be competing with are going to be putting real robust models for AFAs in front. And you'll probably need to bring one too, or at least be open to that, to that conversation. Yeah, Jack, it was really interesting to, to read about the phased fixed fees. 
it's not something that gets talked about a lot in the alternative fee arrangement discussions. So what are phased fixed fees and, and why are they good for in-house counsel? There's really two forms of them. One is um, what you call bid in advance. Uh, and then the other is bid as you go. And so for bid in advance, what you're thinking about is, you know, we have a pretty good sense of the lifestyle, uh, the life cycle of a class action. And if it's a labor and employment class action or a TCPA class action or the kind of um, repetitive class action for which there is good data, you have a sense it's going to be early case assessment, motion to dismiss, potentially some early discovery motions, some discovery, class certification, additional discovery, summary judgment, and then maybe settlement or maybe an appeal. So we have a good part. And, and if many of these, at least on the consumer class action side, labor and employment side, it's the same plaintiff's counsel. We have a good sense of how these cases go. And so for those, you can put together for each of those separate phases I just mentioned, what you think it's going to cost. And there's some discussion between the outside law firm and the, and the client about uh, how much is going to be uh, in, the ca in the fixed fee for each of those stages. So that would be bid in advance. So if the whole thing is going to be a million five each, it, you're going to have specific numbers that are going to be paid at the outset of each of those steps, right? For the bid as you go, that might be more appropriate if it's standing outside counsel who's worked with a company for years and there's a lot of trust between them. What they might do is at the outset of each, they settle on what the fee is going to be. In many ways, this model looks like what it, practicing law was 100 years ago in this country, where it was sort of like, hey, we'll help you in this case. What do you think a reasonable fee is going to be? Well, all right, if it takes a year, I'll take $100. If it's going to take a year and a half, I'll take $150. But we can talk about it when it hits the one-year mark. This idea that we're going to put um, at the outset, if we, we're going to take in $100,000 and litigate the motion to dismiss, and at the, out, at the end of the motion to dismiss, if we've won, we'll talk about whether we're going to, um, you know, what it would be if they get the opportunity to amend the complaint. And if uh, we lose, we're going to talk then about what discovery is going to cost once we know more about the case. At the outset of each case, you're setting that lump, that sort of lump fee. This is sort of a, in between a full-on fixed fee or a cap fee, and at the other end of the spectrum, just using a traditional budget. Because it does give the certainty that in-house counsel likes, but it doesn't fully benefit the client in the way that a cap fee would. Anecdotal responses to our survey this year was that the cap fee and the fixed fee wasn't working because some of the sort of um, negotiating power had gone to the uh, defense bar because they were so busy and there were so many class actions that the defense bar was relatively, um, demand was high for their services. And so they actually got a little bit of um, negotiating hand back into it. Now, if things change over the next year, I'll be interested to see next year if we move back towards the popularity of a fixed fee model. But in my experience, the fixed fee model really works when it's one counsel and you've got one outside counsel and you've got like 10 class actions. You might do two on an hourly budget. And then once you've done those two, you can then pretty well estimate what the other eight are going to cost and you can put a fixed fee number on them that's fair to everybody. The problem with the fixed fee is always in the extreme cases. It's that if you have a case that you've taken in a big fixed fee for and then it goes away on a motion to dismiss, is it fair for the law firm to keep all that? At the other end of it, right, if this ends up being a case where the discovery deadline gets extended twice, the court delays a ruling on a motion um, for class certification, you know, no one really expected the charges to get where they are, then the law firms, you know, at looking at 
receipts that are half their uh, you know, typical hourly rate. So it, it really has to be the right case for fixed fee to work. And the phased model gets around that by chunking it up and making it a little more palatable. And I think the sort of the idea that, again, anecdotally, okay, we're going to ask all these, we're going to have five law firms bid on this class action or talk to us about this class action. We're going to ask them what they think it would cost for an early case assessment and to litigate it through the motion to dismiss. Those are going to be the two numbers that are going to get taken in. And that's really what's going to set most of the budget. And then if that seems to be something that the in-house counsel likes and that works, then you can go with a sort of bid-as-you-go phase payment model for the rest of rest of it. So that's that's a lot of information. There's a lot of there's a lot more I didn't I'm kind of not sharing because there really is a lot that can go to it. But this is as strong a survey result we've seen for the phase payment model, and and it's really it's in-house lawyers trying to say something I think to the defense bar through this survey, and I think the defense bar has to listen. Sure, and it was interesting that one of the findings of the survey was that the best tool for cost control is using trusted counsel. And I'm sure one of the aspects of that is coming up with a, a fee that is, a, is appropriate and, and is good for both parties. What are some of the other things that in-house counsel are thinking about when they are trying to select their quote unquote trusted counsel? The survey responses are pretty striking in this respect too. I'm, in the 12 years we've done this survey, the total number of law firms across all matters including class actions, has really varied wildly from like the low 20s to the high 50s. So these big U.S. companies are dramatically increasing and decreasing the average size over the years of their total panel. But they keep very steady, right? About five law firms each get to, you know, on average, touch class actions. And so the class action, the selection of class action panel is much more careful it tends to stay much more steady across the years of the survey. So what that means is it's kind of hard to get in. doesn't mean you can't get in, but it's hard to get in. And when you get there, you got to really work hard to stay. And so I think the lesson from this is that we also saw this year uh, statistically sort of significant increase in in-house counsel who say that RFPs are effective. So what that means is while they like trusted outside counsel, it doesn't mean they necessarily have trusted outside counsel. They might be in the search for trusted outside counsel and thinking, okay, when I find the right folks, I'm going to go ahead and, and keep them around for a while. What gets you there too is I think not every class action is bet the company. And the outside law firm you might use for bet the company is different from the one you might use for repetitious class actions like the labor and employment, like the TCPA, like some of the product labeling cases. And so understanding at the time when the outside counsel pitches, what kind of class action am I dealing with? Right. And then having creative off ramps. So one of the things that we ask about every year um, is arbitration agreements. Right. It's a huge issue that if it's not caught in the first couple of days, essentially after the service of the complaint, it can be waived. And so, you know, are you as outside counsel bringing that to the table when you're being asked by in house counsel? I mean, there has been some major, major data breach class actions and major, major consumer fraud class actions that were derailed in the first month after they were filed. Because enterprising in-house or outside counsel pointed out the fact that the consumer had signed a binding arbitration agreement and the case cannot proceed in class action or there was a class action waiver. And so there's a lot of issues that are going to depend on sort of that, that early case assessment when the pitch. So if I'm putting together a list of things that sort of a takeaway for outside counsel about how to get into that trusted bucket, I think 
you know, do, um, do think about the size of the matter. Do think about how are you going to talk about fees and don't hide from it until the end. In-house counsel want to have this conversation about fees. Do think about whether there are defenses that need to be applied immediately or else you risk waiver. I think those were three things we saw from the survey that this, this year that if they were done by outside counsel would increase their chances of, of winning the request and getting engaged in a real way by, in, by, inside, by the in-house counsel. Well, let's also talk about some of the claims that are being asserted in recent class actions. I know your survey talks about that as well. Um, we're coming out of the pandemic as a society. So are we seeing a drop in class actions relating to the pandemic as well? Yeah. I mean, for the last three years, we've asked about the COVID and pandemic filings. And the numbers I were, were incredible, right? For, these are some of the biggest companies in the U.S. And I think at one point, 20, 25% of them were reporting that they had a COVID-related COVID-19 related class action. I mean, that's astonishing, right? You don't get to see you don't get to see things like that. I mean, that was really a event-driven litigation industry for a brief period of time. I mean, there were a lot of California wildfire claims, but that was somewhat localized. I and mean, this was the whole country uh, looking at COVID-19 lawsuits, and that has dropped off dramatically. I think we asked this year what percentage of your existing docket is COVID-related, and it's it's about one out of ten, so about ten percent. So it's still appreciable, but it's being run off. What it's being replaced with is a combination of labor and employment class actions and consumer fraud class actions on the docket. Those were the two biggest, as a percentage of the average docket, those were the two biggest pieces. And typically, labor and employment class actions and consumer fraud class actions are not bet the company, right? These are manageable, knowable risks, typically with good case law and precedent that can help the outside counsel and the in-house lawyer price them in an effective way. So I think um, that's 2022 was a story, uh, it, you know, is labor and employment writing the story with consumer fraud in, in the close second. We also ask about what the coming wave is going to be. And this year, the survey respondents pointed to privacy and cyber as the coming wave and consumer fraud as the coming wave. They did not uh, point to labor and employment. And I think that was largely because that wave is already here. Right, one out of three, on average, cases in the docket are labor and employment class actions or, or collective actions, and so I think data privacy and and consumer fraud is what's seen as the next wave. We also ask that question a little bit different. We say, which type of class action worries you the most? And data privacy and cybersecurity are not even in the top few, right? I mean, it's like I think it's less than ten percent this year. So. It's funny how the next wave is going to be cyber and privacy, but no one's really worried about it. And so what that means is, you know, they're, they know it's going to be a percentage of their docket and they'll have to give life to it. But it, barring the extreme cases, and there are some, obviously, you know, that are well publicized, the data privacy class actions are not bet the company class actions. And that they'd be the sort of class action that can be dealt with somewhat routinely. I think that shows a confidence on the part of in-house lawyers that they know what they're doing now. With cyber and privacy, and maybe they didn't three years ago. And the more states that come online with statutory damages models or with private causes of action in the data privacy and cyberspace, the, the more lawsuits we're going to see. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a boil the ocean, turn over all the stone kind of uh, legal defense. So you know, I anticipate in the next year, it's going to continue to be labor and employment. It's going to continue to be consumer fraud. And we're going to see an uptick as a percentage in the privacy and cyber. But I think the ones that are going to keep the in-house counsel up at night 
are going to be more along the lines of labor and employment and consumer fraud. Well, we are coming to the end of our time together, Jack. What is the best way for folks to find you on the, on the web and contact you if need be? Absolutely. So if you want a copy of the Carlton Fields class action survey, just visit our website, carltonfields.com. We think it's required reading for anybody who on plaintiff side, defense side, or in-house who deals with class actions. Um, get in touch with me personally. You can always shoot me an email at jclabby at carltonfields.com. You can look me up on LinkedIn, where you can see me at any of the ABA section of litigation events, including our upcoming section annual and any of the other leadership events. Uh, and I'll be, be sure to uh, reach out to me, say hi, tell me you read the survey and we can talk about it. And I can answer any questions that I might be able to help you. And I'd love to hear your experience too with class actions and what works for you and what doesn't. Sounds great. Well, Jack Labby, thanks for being on the show. Looking forward to seeing you at uh, Litigation Section Annual Conference. Thanks so much, Dave. Thanks for having me on. Again, love the podcast and thanks for all you're doing for the section. Now it's time for a quick tip from the ABA Litigation Section's Mental Health and Wellness Task Force. And I'd like to welcome David Soley for his first tip on the podcast. David has been practicing for more than 40 years and is a shareholder at Bernstein Sure in Portland, Maine, where he concentrates his practice in the areas of business, real estate, and constitutional litigation. He's also the co-author of the book entitled The Trial Lawyer's Guide to Success and Happiness. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you so much for having me at your wonderful podcast, Dave. It's wonderful. I really enjoy listening to it tremendously. And my tip for today is... For all trial lawyers, the time to start preparing for a happy retirement is right now. The lawyers who are able to do that, who give it the time and the energy, almost always have a very enjoyable, happy retirement. And unfortunately, those who don't spend the time immediately to start thinking about it have have issues. We all love the law, but not forever. Uh, Even Moses had to retire after 900 years What we all need to do is figure out when we're going to get tired, when we're going to burn out, and start focusing on how we can retire before that time happens. I have had the pleasure of interviewing almost 100 retired trial lawyers, and I've been able to ascertain a lot of really helpful solutions for what we all should be doing now before retirement. Virtually all trial lawyers have type A personalities. And what that means is retiring to a rocking chair is absolutely not an option. Trial lawyers need to have a detailed plan for retirement. It is exactly like preparing for a trial. All of the energy that we spend preparing, getting ready for a trial, deciding what we're going to do, all of that energy needs to be put to work by all of us in figuring out what we're going to do when we retire. Typically, when trial lawyers retire, the issue is not money, although, frankly, in retirement, the issue is never money. It's more about spending. It's how much you spend, not how much you save. But what we need to do is figure out what we're going to do with our time, what we're going to do with our lives, what we're going to do with our energy. And most of us have thought about bucket list items, hiking the Appalachian Trail, swimming the English Channel, running for head of the American Bar Association. But what a lot of us fail to do and need to do is focus on what we plan to do for overall happiness, what we're going to do not on the bucket list items, but on the day-to-day issues, what, what we're going to do that we never have been able to do during a weekend or during a vacation. 
it's not about rest. Retirement for type A personality trial lawyers is not about rest. It's about funneling our energy, enthusiasm, passion into activities like raising orchids or collecting rocks and minerals or writing novels or painting or running churches or synagogues, looking for spirituality. Humans are social animals. We need to feel alive. So all of us need to sit down and think about what our hobbies are, our causes are, our passions are. And it's not an easy question. It takes a long time. We need to think that through because that is what a wonderful plan is after retirement. We also need in our plan to leave time for taking care of ourselves, vigorous exercise. As we age, our body begins to fall apart quicker than when we're younger. So we need to have a plan for weightlifting. We need to have a plan for cardio, for walks, for swimming, for bicycling. And we need to have a plan for diet. When we're in our 20s and 30s, whatever we eat or don't eat probably doesn't have a great deal of significance. But as we start aging and getting toward retirement, we need to focus on minimizing simple carbs, sugars, heavy fats, fried food, junk food, although we should probably never eat junk food. And we need to think of more and more a life that focuses on fish, that focuses on vegetables, limited fruit. And these are topics that need to be planned now. These are not things that we should put off. If those people who have retired that didn't have a plan, frankly, a lot of them I found to be unhappy. A lot of them I found to get sick. A lot of them I found to not have a very healthy life. But those people that really spent many years planning, just like we planned for a trial, ended up tremendously uh, happy. And it's hard to talk about retirement because type A lawyers love the law, but type A lawyers need to also recognize that we won't love it forever. We need to recognize that there is going to be a stopping point and we need to stop before we get to that stopping point. And the good news is that in talking to all the dozens of lawyers I've interviewed, almost 100, what I found is those who were prepared are happy. And they talked about a life where all of a sudden they woke up in one morning and the, the anxiety and pressure that they probably never even knew was there, all of a sudden it disappeared and they woke up happy. They woke up with lives that they enjoyed even more than being a lawyer, if that's possible, because the anxiety and the pressure disappeared and people were left with a life that that they that they love. And I really I really want everyone here on the show to start focusing on that. Love what you do, love the law, but be prepared and be prepared for the next stage of your life. And hopefully it'll be just as happy and much less stressful as the lives you're leading now. David, those were great tips. Really made me think about uh, preparing for my retirement. So thanks so much for being on the show today. Dave, thank you so much. It's an honor and a pleasure to have been with you today. Well, that's all we have for our show today, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about today's episode. If you have comments or a question you'd like for me to answer on an upcoming show, you can email me at dscrivenyoung, without the hyphen, at gmail.com. And connect with me on social. I'm at AttorneyDSY on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also connect with the ABA litigation section on those platforms as well. But as much as I'd like to connect with you online, nothing beats meeting in person at one of our next litigation section events. Please make plans to join us at the Federal Environmental and Energy Litigation Updates Regional CLE Program in Washington, D.C. on May 9th. Attendees will hear directly from leaders in the U.S. EPA. 
Department of Justice, Environment, and Natural Resources Division, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and SEC with the latest environmental and energy enforcement and litigation updates and initiatives. To find out more and for registration information, please go to ambar.org slash EELC. If you like the show, please help spread the word by sharing a link to this episode with a friend or through a post on social and invite others to join the show and community. If you want to leave a review over at Apple Podcasts, it's incredibly helpful. Even a quick rating over at Spotify Podcasts is super helpful as well. And finally, I want to quickly thank some folks who make this show possible. Thanks to Michelle Oberts, who's on staff with the litigation section, for her help, as well as our fabulous producer, Rich Rivera. Thank you, Rich. Thanks also goes out to my fellow co-chairs of the litigation section's audio contact committee, Josh Jones and Tyler True. Thank you to the audio professionals from Legal Talk Network. And last but not least, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time.